Now I would ask if you will to turn in John's gospel to the third chapter, John chapter 3, well-known portion of scripture, John chapter 3. I will be reading actually I think the first 15 verses of John's gospel. Now let me say that what I wanted to do after Colossians was to turn to Philippians but I'm going to wait to turn to Philippians until our renovations are done and we're back in this room. And so, uh, aside from a few individual texts for a few weeks, I plan to turn to the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation and some other short series of that nature uh, as we work our way through the summer and then back into this building. And let me encourage you, as Bob has already done during that time of renovation, to be very, very faithful uh, and uh, to be in worship uh, as you are now, morning and evening and of course on Wednesday night. Now we come to John chapter 3 beginning with verse 1. Let's pray before reading. Our Father and our God, we ask that the Holy Spirit who has inspired this word and the Spirit of God who alone can give the new birth will be at work this morning. And we pray that even on this day which, in which there are people here undoubtedly who know you and love you and worship you that we will grow in our understanding of truth but that those who may be here today who are strangers to grace may know and experience within their hearts this new birth. That is to say that they would see the result, faith and repentance and trust and obedience, and that they would know that they are saved alone by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen. John's Gospel chapter 3 beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now as I've said, this is a very well-known text. A man of the Pharisees came to Jesus by night. Maybe he is so filled with himself that he doesn't want to be seen coming to talk with Jesus about the needs of his own soul. And yet he's attracted to Jesus. He's a Pharisee, which means that he's on the far right religiously. He has many, many right ideas, and he thinks correctly about many things. He believes, for example, in the resurrection at the last day. He's orthodox about many ideas. However, the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside of the cup, his heart, is filled with dead men's bones. The inside is unwashed, unclean before God. And so he says to Jesus, I know that you have come from God because of all of these miraculous things that you do. But Jesus sweeps away all of that discussion and immediately points Nicodemus to his need and the need of every sinner who has ever been born on this earth and every one of us who sits here today. And that need is found in verse 3 when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, born again, the word that is translated again can also be translated from above. And I think the ambiguity is intentional. We must be born again. There must be a second birth. But that birth comes from above because only God can give it. It is a gift from heaven. It is not something we can work up or something that we can achieve in our own strength or in our own righteousness, for we have none. Nicodemus did not understand How can a man go into his mother's womb and be born a second time, he asks. And in verses 5 through 7, Jesus stresses the necessity of a radical change of nature that Jesus calls birth from above or new birth. Verses 5 through 7, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The new birth, or what we call regeneration, birth from above, second birth, is a necessity. It is indispensable. Without it, Nicodemus cannot see the kingdom of God. The door of heaven is barred shut against every unregenerate heart. If necessary for a master of Israel to know these things, a leader among God's people, then it is necessary for you and for me to know these things. It is a matter of a radical, real change of nature. It is a matter of a real change of heart and mind and of the will. And Jesus teaches that this is a universal necessity. We are born in sin and we need to be born again. It is therefore the necessity of every human heart. Unless a man or a woman or a child be born of water and the Spirit, which means from above by the work of the Spirit, then you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It's that plain. So that's the question if regeneration is an absolute necessity, why? And I would like to start there as we look at the text this morning. And the first point is the necessity of regeneration or the necessity of the new birth. And right from the text we can see several reasons why the new birth is absolutely necessary and indispensable. 
First, it is necessary, Jesus says, because we are flesh. Notice how he puts it there in verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now the word flesh takes on many meanings in Holy Scripture. But here it means our fallenness. It means our depravity. It means our sinfulness. Jesus uses the term that way in John 6.63. It is the spirit that quickens the flesh profits nothing. So flesh cannot rise above flesh. That which is born of flesh will remain flesh. If you're born with a sinful nature, you remain with a sinful nature unless you are born again or born from above. Flesh means that we are thoroughly and totally corrupt. The heart is desperately wicked. As we have just sung from Psalm 51, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From birth we are sinners. Adam's posterity, having fallen in Adam, Adam's posterity is sinful posterity, and we need the new birth because we are flesh. But as we look at the text, we also see that the new birth is necessary because without it we cannot see the kingdom of God. To see means we cannot know it, we cannot experience it, we cannot be a part of it, we cannot understand it. And so he says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Which again does not mean the physical eye. But it means that we cannot partake of, encounter, experience the kingdom of God by nature. Regeneration is necessary if we are to be partakers of the kingdom of God. And again, here in the text we are told that the new birth is absolutely necessary because of spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. The very questions that Nicodemus asks exemplify that darkness. In verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? He's totally in the dark. His mind is darkened. Verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus says, you're a master in Israel and you don't know these things? Don't you know your Old Testament? Don't you know that it's always been the case that men have needed this radical change of nature? Don't you read the Psalms, Nicodemus? Don't you know that that's that's the breathing of a regenerate heart, a changed heart, a renewed heart, and a renewed will? And this radical change of nature was needed then and is needed now. What does that say to us? Man's understanding is depraved. It is spiritually darkened and spiritually blind. And if we are to see, our eyes must be opened by grace to see light. We sing from the words of that old hymn, O happy day that fixed my choice. He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. And that's what is needed. The irresistible drawing of the Spirit of God calling us out of darkness into light, giving to us saving faith and renewing our wills, the new birth. Man's mind is incapable of understanding, perceiving the splendor, the wonder of Christ and what he has come to do. And so the issue here is not intelligence. One may be gifted with all the intelligence in the world, and be spiritually darkened. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It is a matter of the Spirit's work. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot He speaks of the mind that is outside of Christ as being totally incapable of perceiving 
the truths and the realities of God's Word. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul puts it in very stark terms when he says, the natural person, that means the person who does not know Christ. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Which means before the Holy Spirit indwells us, we cannot see, we cannot perceive, we cannot understand, we cannot know God in the sense that we love Him and commune with Him, we are outside of Christ. And the dispositions which determine the purpose and direction of the mind must be changed, and our wills must be renewed, and only the Holy Spirit of God can do this. But also as we read the text, we learn that the new birth is necessary because we are powerless to affect it ourselves. It's true. You cannot bring yourself to birth the first time. And you and I cannot bring ourselves to this new birth, the second birth. You are powerless to enter the kingdom. Not only is man's mind depraved, but his will is depraved and incapable of any spiritual good before this work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus calls the new birth. Now, if you keep your finger here and just turn over to the sixth chapter of John, you'll notice how Jesus himself puts it in John 6, verse 44, when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He speaks of the inability of a man to come unless the Father draws. And in verse 65, of John 6. Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him of my father. In John the 8th chapter, in verses 43 and 47, as Jesus is disputing with the Jews, in John 8 verse 43, He asks the question, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And in verse 47, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And so in these passages and in many others, it speaks of our impotence, our utter helplessness. And you might think it might be more pleasant this morning to hear that you are fallen, but not that fallen that you're sinful but not that sinful, that turning to Christ is really totally in our hands, that we're depraved but our minds and wills are not that depraved and we are not really that unwilling. But I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you that because it is not true. And what the Bible says is that of every man born of Adam's posterity, Every faculty of the mind and of the heart and of the will is so affected by sin that we cannot, unaided, do any spiritual good. And we cannot come to God in our own strength, for we have no strength. Hence, man is impotent and powerless. Now, let me draw some conclusions from these truths. One conclusion is that the lost sinner does not seek God. We have the impression that he does. We're told that all the time. 
we speak of seekers, we have the impression that man just lacks some knowledge. If we can give him the right knowledge, then everybody's seeking God. No, he's not. And Paul tells us in Romans, the third chapter, as he describes man's fallenness, he says in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul simply lifts the lid off of the human heart outside of Christ. And he says, this is the human heart. No man seeks after God. And that teaches us, of course, that man's will is enslaved. It is determined by sin until it is changed by grace. So that man perceives the good news of the gospel as something awful. It's bitter to him. It challenges his basic assumptions about lordship and about life. And the man outside of Christ has no will for it, and until his will is changed, he will have no desire for the gospel, but he'll receive it much like a boy receives bitter medicine. He will turn away from it. Second thing we want to see as we move on in the text, we've seen why the new birth is necessary. Now we want to see the nature of the new birth. What is the new birth anyway? What is it like? What, what is the new birth? What's its nature? And since, as our larger catechism puts it, question 25, since the sinner is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, regeneration, as we have seen, is indispensable, what is its nature? Let me give you these characteristics. Regeneration, first of all, is the result of the Holy Spirit's work. We read in verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Which is the problem with decisional regeneration. You can just decide to come to Christ on your own. The problem is that you, you're, you're able, but you're, you're, your will is it's fallen, but you can really decide on your own. And that glorifies the sinner. And it makes the sinner think that he has qualifications for coming to Christ or power to bring himself to God. And it's dangerous in evangelism to tell a sinner to think that he can save himself or bring himself into a savable state. As old Puritan Carnock said, the chief design of the gospel is to beat down all glorying in ourselves. So any form of evangelism that lifts it up defeats the whole purpose, which is to beat down self-glorying that God may be all in all. So someone says, well, God would not require of a sinner what he cannot do, but the Bible does not teach that. It teaches that he does require what you cannot and I cannot do by nature. It teaches us that the sinner is responsible to turn to God, even though incapable of doing so. And so we must be born from above. It must be God to us because we are not able to decide ourselves into the kingdom of God. 
And the analogy of the new birth itself, the analogy of birth. Birth is a wonderful and, and, and mysterious thing. Despite all that we can say about it, birth is still a great mystery. Ecclesiastes 11.5, As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. Regeneration does not take place, you see, on the level of our consciousness. What we experience are the results of regeneration. I am conscious of faith and repentance, but the inscrutable work of the Spirit. There are mysteries here to be adored, people of God. Mysteries to be adored. It's beyond our capability of understanding. Because it's the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But also... Regeneration is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, which again is taught clearly in verse 8. You hear the wind. You cannot tell from where it comes. You cannot see where it goes. So is everyone who is born of God. No one can direct the wind. It's independent. I cannot see it. I cannot govern it. It is a sovereign work. And men are passive in regeneration. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in trespasses and sin. Men are passive at that point where one raises us to life. So you think of Christ before Lazarus' tomb. Odd if he had said, Lazarus, bring yourself forth from the tomb to burst from the tomb because you have ability to do so. No, Lazarus, come forth. And we are in need of that very word of the sovereign spirit. I am the life-giving spirit doing for you what you cannot do for yourself, bringing to you life, granting to you faith and repentance. That's what we're told in John 1, in verses 12 and 13. We all know verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But it goes on to say, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It's all of grace. The Holy Spirit is a free agent, not commanded by anyone, not prohibited by any man. Man is dead in sin, that's bad news, but God is sovereign and that is good news. Our God is able to save and redeem and bring dead souls to life. And given man's state, this is the only hope for helpless sinners and there's not a sinner beyond the reach of God's free and sovereign mercy. So in this great matter of the new birth, God does not come, the Spirit of God does not say, I've come to ask your permission to give you new birth. He does not come and say, I I want your consent to bring new birth to you. And Christ did not die for nothing. He will have his people And nothing and no one can stop him. But not only that, regeneration, the work of the Spirit, a sovereign work of the Spirit, the work of regeneration also is a transforming act of the Holy Spirit. It is just as extensive as is our depravity, and that is good news. It extends to every faculty of a human being. The mind, the affections, the will. He renews the will. He renews the mind. Nicodemus was in the dark. Because, you see, we reason sinfully. 
And regeneration causes us to understand what we did not understand, renews the affections. And Jesus is reflecting in this passage, Ezekiel 36, 26, a new heart also will I give you. The promise to his people. So that in place of an adamant heart of stone, the Spirit gives hearts of flesh that begin to beat inflamed with love for God. No longer am I hard-hearted. Now the sinner loves what he once did not love, and his affections are changed. The Spirit renews, and he transforms the will, and the will is changed, and man is liberated, and the shackles are removed. And men who do not want Christ now want him with all of their hearts and with all of their will. You want God. You love God. You once hated his word. You did not want him to be Lord over you. Now everything is new and everything is changed and everything is different. That's the new birth. But also regeneration is a cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. Do you know your heart needs cleansing? And so when Jesus says in verse 5, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water there does not mean baptism. Again, it's a reference to the work of the Spirit. It's a, a double way of speaking of the Spirit's work. In Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. And God promises to cleanse the heart. And the Holy Spirit is the only efficient agent to do it. Which leads us to the third thing that we need to think through about regeneration. Regeneration, the effects of regeneration. What does it do? What does it accomplish? What does it achieve? What are the evidences of it in the lives of God's people? The effects of regeneration. Well, the work of the Spirit is sovereign and we cannot direct His work. But the Lord has promised to use His Word. He does not work in the same in the same way in all of his people at the same time of life. Most of our children in covenant homes and households, I'm convinced, are ordinarily born from above in early childhood, but not always. Some of us go through long times of legal despair before the Holy Spirit actually opens our hearts and breaks the conviction. Some hear the gospel and there's the immediate confluence of the work of the Spirit and the word that is preached and they're converted. But in every case, it is the Holy Spirit who grants the new birth. And in every case, there are these things, without exception. In everyone who is born again, there is, first of all, a changed relation to sin. Now, I'm not saying sinless perfection. You know that. We are completely just in God's sight and receive, but we continue to sin but nonetheless, there's a changed relation to sin. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, as John unpacks the ways in which regeneration changes the heart, 1 John 2, 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So there's a new trajectory in your life, and you begin to practice righteousness, which means that my thought life must change, my will must change, my desires must change, 
And it continually changes, but the point at which the change begins is when the Holy Spirit actually gives to me the new birth and regenerates my heart. He shows the sinner the necessity of another foundation on which to build. As Karnak says, he brings the soul off from itself to the foot of God and bottom of the cross. And therefore the Spirit leads us to forsake our sin. Because Jesus came not only to deliver us from the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin. And so everyone who is born of God has a new trajectory in life in which he more and more hates sin, more and more loves righteousness. It's not a straight line on a graph, but that is the trajectory of your life. Also, everyone who is born of God has a changed relation to the world. A changed relation to the world. Again, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does, does the will of God abides forever. So there is a new understanding of our place in the world, that we are in the world but not of the world. We can love God himself and appreciate his good gifts without idolizing those gifts. The world, the flesh, the devil that once drew us are not attractions anymore. And when they do attract, the Spirit of God is at work to keep drawing us to Christ. So there's a new relation to the world, to this world system. And that's because you're a member, according to John 3, of a new kingdom. You now can see the kingdom of God. That is to say, enter it, be a part of it. You now fellowship with God. You're a part of his kingdom. But before the new birth, you were not. So there's a changed relation to sin, there's a changed relation to the world, there's a changed relation to the church. So that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So that God's people love God's people, and want to be with God's people and a part of God's people. And so it's a frightening thing to hear someone say, I've been born again, but I have no interest in the church. When one of the evidences of the new birth is that you love the people of God. Warts and all, problems and all, difficulties and all, stresses and all. You love the people of God. And then there's a changed relation to Christ. And for that I simply say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Once this Christ that you rejected, and indeed the scriptures say we hated, not somebody's idea of Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible, we would not have him to be Lord over us. But now he's the object of our faith. And my relation has so changed to him that I put not some, not a little, but all of my trust in him. And I believe on him because the Spirit of God has worked faith within my heart. You see, we do not believe in order to be born again. God gives us the new birth in order that we might believe. 
Faith is a gift that comes from the Spirit of God. So now Christ is the object of my faith. So there is a changed relation to sin, a changed relation to the world, a changed relation to the church, and most importantly and fundamentally, a changed relation to Christ. And if these effects are present, you have been born again. If they are not present, you have not been born again. They are not there in perfection in any believer, but if the Holy Spirit has regenerated, these things are discernible. Where the Spirit of God is at work, He brings us to the end of ourselves and the end of our efforts, and we come to the foot of the cross and we trust in Christ alone. So you remember the discussion about our inability to come, and yet God's requirement that we come, and yet only the Spirit of God can enable us to come? I've told you this story before, even on a Sunday night, recently mentioned it in passing, but it's a great one. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, pastor, theologian, 19th century, at this point pastoring in Savannah, later in New Orleans, but he pastored in Savannah. Great revival had swept through his congregation. I mean a good, solid, biblical revival. Many people coming to Christ, faith, repentance, trust. And there was a man who had been attending the worship services, and he said to Dr. Palmer as he came into his study, he burst into his study, really, and he said, you preach all men are incapable of faith. And then you say, if a man does not believe, he will be damned. That's right, said Dr. Palmer. Both of those things are taught in the Word of God. He said, I want you to know I can believe whenever I want to. Dr. Palmer said, go do it. So the man left in anger. And a little while later he came back and he said, I can't. I've tried for days. And so Dr. Palmer said, let's go to God. They got on their knees together and Palmer poured out his heart to God and the young man was brought from a state of misery to life. Because the Holy Spirit opened his heart and brought him to an end of himself and his own self-effort. So have you come to an end of yourself? So I call upon you to believe in Christ knowing that the Spirit of God can make you alive to receive him. I call upon you to fall on the absolute promise that Christ receives any sinner who comes to him by faith. And the Christian minister can go out into the world knowing that he's preaching in a cemetery, but he's preaching God's word, and the Lord can take the foolishness of preaching in the eyes of men, it's foolish. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he can grant life and raise men and women and children from the dead. I remember Dabney saying to his students, I wasn't actually there, it was a long time ago, 19th century. I read it. Dabney said, look out the window here at the seminary. You can go outside. You see these saplings? If I go and I pull up these saplings, you'll think, well, no big deal. If I take these hands and I go out and I pull up these giant oaks, you'll say, what power? So God has ordained that weak, frail, cracked pots like this minister preach in the world to people who have been regenerated and people who have not. And he takes this weak, weak thing, and through that weakness, the Spirit of God empowers the gospel to be the hands that pull up the oaks. Better yet, to raise the dead.
That's what God does. And oh, this is why Satan hates the gospel. Let me read Karnak again. Men, Satan hates the gospel because it begets those for heaven whom Satan has begotten for hell. It pulls down his image and sets up God's image. It pulls the crown off his head and the scepter from his hand and snatches subjects from his empire and straightens his territories and demolishes his forts and breaks his engines and outwits his subtlety and makes his captives his conquerors and himself a conqueror, a captive. It pulls men out of the kingdom of darkness and translates them into a kingdom of light. And that's what regeneration achieves. And so in our ministry here, we must completely depend upon the Holy Spirit. Here's this hardened sinner. And he's rejected the gospel time and time and time and time again. Then he comes to know the Lord. Why? Because in God's sovereign purpose and timing, it was the time for that man to be born again. So I ask, will you pray? We cannot control the sovereign work of the Spirit, but we can pray. And in God's sovereignty, He has ordained our prayers. So will you pray for this? Will you pray that the Lord will take the gospel we preach and apply, apply it to hearts with exceeding power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead? Will you do this? Will you pray for the Lord to use your ministers and this ministry for your pastors, for your missionaries, for your evangelists, for a powerful effusion of God's Spirit, will you pray that our whole being will be alive with God's truth so that with George Whitfield we can say, God, give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye, and let men or devils do their worst. Yes, let men or devils do their worst because God has promised to use his word in conjunction with the Spirit's work to bring true conversion to sinners. Mr. Spurgeon said this, and with this I'm almost done. Mr. Spurgeon said, the Lord, when he means to save sinners, does not stop to ask them whether they mean to be saved But like a rushing mighty wind, the divine influence sweeps away every obstacle. The unwilling heart bends before the potent gale of grace. And sinners that would not yield are made to yield by God. I know this. If the Lord willed it, there is no man so desperately wicked here this morning that he would not be made now to receive, to seek for mercy. However infidel he might be, however rooted in his prejudices against the gospel, Jehovah, Jehovah hath but to will it, and it is done. Into thy dark heart, O thou who hast never seen the light, would the light stream? If he did but say, let there be light, there would be light. Thou mayest bend thy fist and lift up thy mouth against Jehovah, But he is thy master yet, thy master to destroy thee if thou goest on in thy wickedness, but thy master to save thee now, to change thy heart and turn thy will as he turneth the rivers of water. And I will tell you, people of God, these things, these truths are the joy of my heart. 
in 18th century England when things morally were worse than they are in our present day and culture. They really were. They were more decadent than they are presently. God sent a powerful word, blessed the preaching of the gospel, and all through England. Not that everyone would say, but it was massive. Men and women and children coming to faith in Christ. And what did God use? The men, the men didn't have special effects. They didn't have electronic bands. They didn't have, they didn't have all kinds of colored lights. They didn't have anything that the world considered exciting. They went back to the old apostolic method. And they preached the word, the authority of scripture, the depravity of man, the necessity of regeneration, justification by grace through faith. And they lifted up Christ and preached Christ. And one by one by one, ministers all over England who were lost men, God regenerated. And they now went into the pulpits and began to preach the truth. And God sent massive revival. That's what our culture needs. I'm praying for it, are you? We need the work of the Spirit of God. And again, this is the great joy of my heart. Without which I would not be a preacher. How foolish to stand up and preach to sinners to have faith and to be able and, and, and to repent when I know that they can't do it according to the Bible unless I also know the Bible says that please God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe and that faith is the gift of the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. Without it, Pastor McDonald and I wouldn't have a ministry. Without it, there would be no Christianity. But with it, God will always have his people that he will draw out of darkness into light. And sometimes in history, he sends massive reformation, renewal, and revival. Sometimes when things are at their darkest. And I'm praying for that. And I hope you will too. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.